start right off and pray for San Bernardino together and pray for our enemies. You guys down for that? All right. If you want to stand, you can stand, but we are actually going to intercede on behalf of this nation, uh, that city, the, uh, the families of those who are fallen, and we're going to pray for our enemies because Matthew 5.44 says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus, right now, we come before your throne. We're seated in heavenly places, and we'd like to talk to you about the state of our nation that is under attack right now. And we ask, Lord, that you would protect our borders, that you would heal the hearts of the family uh, members that lost uh, family members in uh, San Bernardino. Jesus, that you would pull back every bit of the demonic delusional cloud that is uh, trying to come against us. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless those who are trying to hurt us. Lord, it feels like the last thing that we want to do right now is to intercede for those who hurt us. But right now, we ask that your love would invade their lives. Father, that um, you would do for them what you did for me. You would ransom them out of the domain of darkness. You transfer them into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son whom you love, that you do for them what you did for us, Jesus. You do for them what you did for Saul. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys know that half your New Testament was written by a jihadist, right? Saul, public enemy number one, going around killing Christians systematically, stripping them of their uh, jobs, their houses, scattering their families, imprisoning people who called on the name of Jesus, torturing, murdering people with stones. Saul, he wrote half your New Testament. What in the world happened to him? Someone knocked him right off his donkey. Jesus, he's the greatest miracle worker. He's the greatest transformer of hearts. He can knock all of ISIS off the stubborn donkey that they are riding. And, uh, man, I I have uh, some compassion for um, people in Islam Um, hoping to get as much compassion as Jesus has for them. But imagine Jesus never came. And our Old Testament is our New Testament. And our understanding of God has uh, has never come through the lens of Jesus's life. Well, that's, that's Islam. They believe in an angry, vindictive, faraway God who cannot be approached. And uh, this is actually a topic that I wanted to tackle today. Um, it, we, we call it different things in the church, but I'd like, to, um, I'd like to talk about how good the Father is. And um, through, I'm, I'm going to be speaking on the next few Sundays in December, and what I want to focus on is the Trinity and specifically the incarnation of Jesus, because we're about to sing Christmas songs to him, right? <clears throat> Last night, I took, 
I took my son to the movie Good Dinosaur. Have you guys, anybody seen it yet? It's a new Disney movie. And um, Judah is a super quality timer, and he was so excited to spend time with just daddy because we have four kids, and, um, you know, our attention is divided up, and so when he gets one-on-one time, it's really special to him. So I took him to the movie. I got him this awesome smoothie that they hid spinach in so that he got uh, vitamins that night. It was really great. It was completely covered up by the taste of strawberry. Uh, we, <clears throat> I got him all the candy he wanted, all the popcorn he wanted, and we sat down and watched the movie. And um, I will warn you, if you're taking your kids, they have a short film at the beginning of the movie that is the most demonic cartoon about the uh, religion of Hinduism that you will ever see. I had to cover Judah's eyes through the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> and, I mean, it, it was a father-son praying to their, their three Hindu gods, and the son gets taken into a vision with these demons. Like, yeah, good on you, Disney. <laughs> anyway, we got into the movie Good Dinosaur, <clears throat> and uh, that was like an encounter with God himself. It was all about the father and the son. And um, Judah loved it, and I wept like a baby. I wept so much that I was concerned about the people around me. <laughs> like, they... <laughs> I was, like, convulsing and a lot of sniffling and snot. I blew my nose right into the sleeve of my T-shirt because I knew I was going to put a jacket on, you know, on the way out, so no one would see the giant snot stain right there. <laughs> I'm getting I'm really getting encountered by the love of the father at the end of this movie and Judah's like he's loving the fight scenes and he's smiling and I'm just bawling he looks over at me (laughs) I don't know what he was thinking but he gave me a funny look and then went back to watching the movie um A few weeks ago, I asked this question about the father and the son, and it's, uh, it's this, did God turn his back on Jesus or hide his face from Jesus when he was on the cross? It's an important question uh, for us to, to tackle because it would certainly change our understanding of the dynamics and love between the father and son. And and so I want to just recap really quickly what we talked about a couple weeks ago. On the cross, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, he was quoting the beginning of Psalm 22, where David is actually tapping into the cry of humanity. And... And a lot of people believe that in that moment, Jesus was so covered in sin that God could not even look at his own son. I believe that Jesus was asking our question of God ever since Adam and Eve. See, Adam and Eve screwed up big time. And they thought that God was going to be extremely angry and vindictive And the fear and the shame led them to hide. And so it was actually Adam hiding from God, but God never hid 
from us. But he believed that something he had done would actually change the nature of God's love for him. In John uh, 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Uh, It doesn't actually say this was temporarily suspended on the cross. John 14.11 says, I'm in the Father, the Father in me. John 6.46, from the Father and with the Father. John 6.32, he says this to the disciples, you will all leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself not counting people's sins against them. John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. But we have this idea that God had to turn his back on Christ because he was so utterly full of the sin of humanity in that moment that God in his holiness couldn't even look on him in that moment. And you wouldn't believe how pervasive this uh, theology, this understanding of God's heart is. One final breath he gave as heaven looked away. I love that song, the chorus. Forever he's glorified. And I'm not trying to like pick on Bethel. I, I worship my socks off to Bethel. They have like the best worship music coming out month after month. And David Porcady, buy his album. I'm on it. <laughs> David Porcady's new album, available on iTunes. And it's in the cafe. Anyway, I really wasn't trying to call out anyone who, who, any songwriters or anything like that, because this really is a belief that we have, and uh, it's something we certainly have to address. Would the Father turn his face from the Son? Is God unable to look on sin? I don't think that God was ever our enemy. I believe that we believed we were his. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. But Jeremy, wasn't the father too pure to look on sin? And my question is, why would it then have been okay for Jesus to hang out with tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, and sinners? Is Jesus in the flesh less holy than the father? This is something we we really have to tackle. It is the subject of the Trinity. Uh, But there's that scripture in Habakkuk that says God can't look on evil. It's Habakkuk 1.13. It says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate it. Well, 
might as well close the Bible because my sermon is trash. Unless you just finish that verse, it says, why then do you? See, Habakkuk, as a prophet, is poetically pouring out his lament and complaint to the Lord. He's saying, there's a lot of evil, a lot of injustice. I thought that you were too holy to look on this stuff. Why do you then? And for some reason, we've created a doctrine around a man complaining to God. (laughs) If you created doctrines around every time I complain to God, the church would fall apart. I promise you, he hears me complain to him a lot. This is just like Adam's misunderstanding. And David's Psalm 22. They're crying out and they're thinking God's forsaken them, but their minds have been darkened, a veil has been placed over them, and they're having a lot of trouble seeing and hearing God, and they're assuming that he is hiding from them when really it is their shame hiding them from him. But wasn't there a separation that had to be dealt with? Yes. Isaiah 59, verse 1, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull, but your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden you from him. Sin caused us to pull away. Sin separated us from God. It did not separate God from us. See, we're going... Honestly, where are we going to run from a God that's everywhere? If I descend to the depths of the grave, if I hide myself, if a mountain falls on top of me, behold, you are there. Like David is saying, I can't get away from you. You're everywhere. So Jesus starts off the terrible ordeal on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, And if you continue to read in Psalm 22, the very psalm that he's quoting, once you get to verse 24, it says, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Psalm 34 says he's close to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Father never turns his back on anyone. The man that you just heard say, that's right. If you heard his testimony, you would know, that's right. (laughs) We just heard Robert's testimony at Deuteronomy on Friday. And the... uh, amount of brokenness that he came through, the amount of uh, pain and, and, and sorrow that he caused himself and his family to be redeemed completely by God, you know, many years ago and look and love the way that he does today brought everyone in that room so much hope. The Bible doesn't hide the failures of our heroes, does it? Robert is one of our heroes. He's got a lot of failures, just like me. So Jesus starts off crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But by the end of that psalm, it actually says, you don't hide your face from anyone. So Jesus was stepping in 
to the cry of humanity in that moment. He's stepping into our blindness. He's stepping into our accusation of God, and he's undoing it. Have you ever wondered why God pouring out his wrath on man looks a lot like man pouring out his wrath on God in that moment? We're hurling stones, we're stripping the skin, we're placing the crown of thorns on him, we're nailing him to the cross, and we're still accusing him, mocking him. It looked a lot like man was pouring out his rage, his wrath, his accusation. And God was taking it, saying, I forgive you. You don't know what you're doing. I believe that is the only way that we would be redeemed from that place in our fallen minds of believing that we are enemies from God, the only way the veil would be lifted, the only way that we would be able to approach God with confidence in our heart and believe that he's a good father is for us to murder him while he forgives us. And I believe that much of our misunderstanding of the Father's heart comes from our lack of understanding about the Trinity, the Father's Son and Holy Ghost. This is a doctrine that gets very little attention nowadays um, because some consider it quite weird. Um, Most of the reasons can be summed up by shame, fear, and control. There are more than a dozen scriptures that mention uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Um, one that has always uh, tweaked my brain is, <laughs> I'd like to tweak your brain, so I'm going to invite you into the tweaking of my brain. Ephesians 5.31-32 through 32 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and his church. So that good old... You know, marriage verse, you see at every wedding, or here at every wedding. Um, If you see the verse at the wedding, then you know something crazy is happening. But (laughs) you hear the verse at every wedding, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And it says, I am speaking a profound mystery, but this is about Jesus. So Jesus left his who? That's pretty crazy. So, Jeremy, are you saying that the... It's a mystery, guys. (laughs) May your brains be tweaked. At Storehouse, we're really into the love of God. Uh, Other churches, they might really be into his sovereignty or justice or his power... Um, those are really cool subtopics. But we have to know that God at his core, God is love, right? When you dig down to the very core motivation of God, you're not going to find justice, holiness, judgment. You're going to find love. And everything he does is motivated out of that place of love. Christians, Christianity is the only religion that 
believes we get a behind-the-scenes look at the life of God. And the greatest revelation of it is Christ. He says, when you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, other religions don't believe that God can be approached, but we actually get invited over for dinner. And whereas there's, there's some mystery into understanding like the, the relationship between the, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, that, that great mystery that Paul talked about in Ephesians 5, I cannot, we can rightly say that a lot of the mystery has been solved. It seems like the Father really wanted to be revealed perfectly in the life of Christ. This is not the Old Testament. His ways are no longer concealed. Muslims don't believe that they will even have fellowship with God in heaven. They won't won't be any closer to the God that they served when they entered the paradise for serving him so well. Because He is far too holy to be approached. But we have been invited into the Trinity, the family of the living God. And the reason that we can draw near is because we have been shown that core motivation of his love. And the only reason we know his core motivation is love is because He existed before we did, and the three were in one, just loving their existence. See, love has to have an object to bestow or pour or lavish its love upon. Well, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they had a great thing going. The Father and Son would start bragging about the Holy Ghost, and they're like, man, the Holy Ghost though, right? He's, I just love the Holy Ghost. In fact, I feel him making me happy right now. And, the, and then the Holy Ghost is like, yeah, 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 I'm pretty cool, but Jesus. <laughs> and, and then they talk about the Father and how great the Father is, and they're continually like crashing into the greatness of one another. And then there comes this day, and they're like, we got we to gotta do something about this. We got to open the doors to this. Let us make man in our own image. You were made for love. I know this is love because no one is forced into it. We're welcomed into it. We're invited into it. Because love does not pressure, coerce, or manipulate. And love, even his love, can be rejected. Love, even his love, can be rejected. Resisted. But he gives us ample opportunity to accept his offer to come on over for dinner. There's a powerful draw to his love. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw the hearts of men. You know, people who end up in eternal judgment aren't those who sinned more. Let me say that again. People who end up in eternal judgment are not those who sinned more. 
They're those who rejected his invitation to enter into the fellowship of his love. In fact, uh, since there are no amount of righteous deeds that get me into paradise, there can be no amount of unrighteous deeds that would keep me out. Right? Oh, I feel you. Woo! Come on now, sacred cow. <laughs> <laughs> Holy Spirit, we love you. We ask that you'd open the eyes of our understanding. Woo! His invitation is the greatest news. He solved our problem. He solved the problem of our darkened minds, our carnal minds, and made us believe that we are God's children. He's removed the stain of sin from our nature. And from our understanding, he invited us into his heart. You know, that, I want to go back to that verse, Ephesians 5.31. It says that we become one with Jesus. Meaning God relates to us like he relates to Christ. In fact, you can't have a personal relationship with God. We've been invited into the Trinity It shows a little bit of our misunderstanding of this great invitation when we try to invite Jesus into our heart when we've already been invited into his. Which would you prefer? Would you prefer to bring him into your heart or for him to bring you into his now, I'm not trying to, like, kick away some of your verses where it says, you know, I and the Father will make our abode with you. I totally believe that. But this is just, it's not just semantics. It's the very place where joy is either forfeited or found. Because there is no greater experience, no greater exhilaration, no greater joy to be found than to fellowship with the Trinity. You can find nothing apart from God that will ever equal an encounter with him. See, the, the atonement was for us. His sacrificial life, death, and reconcil- uh, resurrection to reconcile us to God. Uh, this is where our belief in the Trinity becomes very important. Uh, Most believers would say that the Trinity consists of the jerk, the son, and the Holy Scripture. (laughs) I mean, they wouldn't say that. But seriously, our understanding of the Father is a raging deity whose narcissistic bloodlust had to be paid off by human sacrifice. And we believe in a dictator's son named Jesus who's sort of passive-aggressive. He came to save sinners for dying for them one day, and next time he comes, he's going to annihilate those sinners that he died for. Holy Spirit, oh yeah, he's the legalistic code of conduct and the accuser in our thoughts. Rather than an indwelling, intimate God of love. The cross was not scratching an itch that the Father had to create a condition by which he could tolerate us. 
We had to be changed. God didn't have to be changed. In order to fellowship, we were given white garments. He wasn't paying off an angry deity. He wasn't twisting God's arm to accept us. He wasn't holding back God's hand from crushing us. His love is unconditional. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and, be f- and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, the blood was not for him, it was for you. The early church never believed this idea that Jesus' suffering and dying was to save us from God. On the cross, Jesus was changing us. He stepped into the depths of my depravity, my shame, my anxiety, my alienation, my desperation, my rebellion, my twistedness, my corruption, my fear. And he took it all down in the grave and left it there and rebirthed me without any of it. We're going to keep on talking about the Trinity over the next couple Sundays. Um, And I wanted to end it right there because it'll be a great mind tweaking for a week. (laughs) Let's stand and pray. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul is saying to his disciple Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And he says in Galatians 5.16, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. The goal of all instruction is love. That we would become love. God is love. And we're going to be just like him in every way. Not just an internal reality of righteousness, but an external demonstration of his righteousness and holiness. We will be his manifestation of love on the earth. So right now, Lord, we ask that you would increase our faith, our understanding, that wisdom and revelation would permeate our minds and our beings. Thank you, Father, for Christmas. Thank you, Lord, that we get to celebrate big this month that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father of heavenly lights. Thank you, Jesus, that this month we get to feast and celebrate you. I don't care when specifically you were born. This month we are celebrating you, Jesus, real big. (laughs) I ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding into the nature of God. In Jesus' name, amen.